Welcome to a new episode of 1869, the Cornell University Press podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we will be talking with Tim Wendell. Tim is a writer in residence at Johns Hopkins University and is the author of Summer of 68, Castro's Curveball, and High Heat, which was an editor's choice selection by the New York Times Book Review. Tim has a new book out with Cornell this month entitled Cancer Crossings, A Brother, His Doctors, and the quest for a cure to childhood leukemia. We were able to catch him on his cell phone while I was traveling. Hello, Tim. Welcome to 1869. Great to be with you, Jonathan. How are you doing today? Doing great. How about yourself? Doing fine. Spring's coming, or so they tell me, and I'm a, I'm a happy camper. Same here, same here. We're enjoying the, the slowly warming weather up here in Ithaca, and, and uh, it sounds like you're, you're in somewhat of a heat wave down in Virginia. <laughs> yeah, I'll take anything right now. 55 <laughs> degrees is the heat wave. <laughs> <laughs> so now uh, you're the author of 13 books now with, with this new book that's coming out. Uh, some of your earlier titles were The Summer of 68, High Heat, Red Rain, and Castro's Curveball. And your new book with Cornell, Cancer Crossings, as your first memoir, uh, part family memoir, part medical narrative. Could you tell us a bit about how the book came to be? Sure. Love to, Jonathan. And it's funny because it didn't start off to be a memoir. It's funny what happens when you get with those editors up there at, at Cornell, at Ithaca. You know, things, things turn out a little differently than, than <laughs> you began. <laughs> but no, it's all good. Um, it, pretty much the genesis of this project, I had a brother who died of leukemia. I mean, that's way back um, almost a half century ago now. And my daughter was in um, first year of medical school. She's now doing a residency in uh, emergency medicine. I think she's a heck of a doctor. Um, but she came home the first year when she was at Georgetown. And that's when they study, I think, about every known malady known to man, everything that could kill you. And she came home. She was living in D.C., but came out for dinner or something. And they must have been studying leukemia. Because all of a sudden she started asking me all these questions about my brother, um, what meds he was on, what hospital he was at, the doctors that took care of him, the approach, the philosophy. Uh, Jonathan, I really couldn't answer many of them at all. And I was kind of embarrassed. And she left that night. And I got online, Google Scholar, through Johns Hopkins Library, etc. Two things stood out. And, and you got to remember, I'm not, a, at least at that point, had very little background in medical stuff. Number one was when my brother was diagnosed in 1966, it was a 10% survival rate for kids with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Today, it's more than 90%. And I'm not a big numbers guy, but I liked that arc going from 10% to 90%. And then I started looking at some clinical trials and such, and what really struck me as I started seeing the same names, James Holland, Donald Pinkle, Lucius Sinks, and I realized these are the guys who took that from 10% to 90%. And pretty much that night, I stayed up a good chunk of the night, and I decided, let's see what we can do with this. And I realized that a lot of those doctors and nurses were getting on in years. They were late 80s, 
what, a couple or even early 90s by that point. And so the race was on. Could, could I get in touch with them? Could I talk with them uh, before, you know, they passed on themselves? And so that was away we went. And so it was kind of a race against time slash journey story. And most of my books are journey stories. So <laughs> it seemed to fit. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that recently. One of the the premier doctors in the field, James Holland, had just passed away. So yeah, I was kind of bummed out about that because Jim was a real help to the project, and he was very committed to, um, in essence, uh, what they were trying to do. I mean, one of the last conversations I had with Dr. Holland, and you got to remember, he was still working three days a week at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York at that point in time, you know, until he died just a couple of weeks ago. And I said, why are you working so hard? And I was just kind of trying to make some chit chat. And he said, well, you know, he got a little miffed. And he said, if I can get a couple more years, I think I can solve the riddle of women's breast cancer. And you just kind of go, oh, okay, this is, this is how serious it is for these guys. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, in the, in your book, you, you, there was a telling line where you're reading, you say that the, um, the handbook of pediatrics at the time uh, of your brother's um, diagnosis in the 1960s, uh, the line in the handbook of pediatrics simply read, there is no cure for leukemia. Treatment is directly is directed at prolonging life and relieving symptoms. Um, that's pretty sobering. Um, but you, then you go on to set, tell how the doctors that treated Eric, uh, your brother uh, at Roswell Park, were mavericks in the field. Um, can you tell us more about this group of you call them medical underdogs and how they overcame? Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to. They, as you correctly pointed out, the, the mindset, we're talking, well, mid-60s, even a little bit before. And you think about, we're still battling this somewhat, a little bit, Jonathan, with, with cancer. But it, it was you know, it was the C word. Some people couldn't even say the word cancer. And if cancer was in the family, oh my gosh, what were you going to do? And this is the mindset that these guys pushed back against. And it wasn't just the doctors. It was a really strong cadre of nurses too. But they got really singled out by the medical profession for years. They were called killers, poison pushers, cancer cowboys, misfits. And large part because they dared take on cancer because pretty much the feeling was back then, you know, this is, and it's still a very difficult, challenging disease, but kind of the mindset was why bother? And these guys decided to bother. And you had in the beginning only about six, 10 hospitals across the country where they were trying to do something. And uh, that's one of the things that surprised me when I started to do cancer crossings was how much opposition there was in the medical community. And, and it wasn't just trying to figure out cancer and, in a sense, deal with that and try to cure it. You also were pushing against your peers and, uh, you know, your, your pressure groups and all that. And that, that blew my mind. And, and I think it really shows the initiative and the courage these guys had to be singled out for decades by your peers and being called about every name in the book and yet they just keep kept pushing ahead wow wow i mean that's a testament to their um passion and uh, i don't even know if passion is the right word they're just uh 
striving towards towards helping people, as, as you were saying um, with Dr. Holland, you know, just give me a couple more years and maybe I could find a cure. This this continuous um, goal of we got to help some more, we got to help as many people as we can. And if colleagues are slinging mud at them, that's that's their problem, you know. Um, very much chemotherapy. What was their, their commit? Their commitment was unbelievable. Um, and, 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 and they really believed in dosages. They were resilient. As resilient a group of individuals as I've ever back when they started the world come across, and I've done some pretty major ones in the sports world. Much the rule you know, the Olympic team, the 1968 Detroit Tigers, and one at a time. These guys were one at a time on patients and back each other up as much. And these guys have got to go a different way, and they were really. And kind they of came up the with some, a little bit, some technologies but, um, that we now take for granted. They were, were Doctor Sinks once things? told me he said it was kind of guesswork, oh, but we knew we were headed in the right direction. So chemotherapy drugs is one of the first major breakthroughs using these new drugs: methotrexate, six MT, uh, di diamonosin, etc. All of these that were coming onto the scene through National Institutes of Health and having the guts to use them. And, and just to say, well, we're not quite sure, but let's, I, you know, methadrexate, you know, worked like this last time. So what if we increase the dosage and may couple it up with vincristin or prednisone or something like that? And that's genius in my part. I mean, they were, you know, they were, it was almost like they were jazz musicians a little bit, but they were using these new meds. Um, another huge breakthrough, which I love, I love this story. They, you know, you and I may sit around and, you know, talk about things and go, well, it'd be great if we had this or that to help us in our workplace. And one day these guys were sitting around, they said it would be great if we had some kind of machine, you know, they almost made it sound like this magical machine that could, in a sense, spin the blood and separate out the platelets and the granulites and all these things that are really good especially for young patients, for kids, especially kids that are having blood transfusions, because at this point in time in the 60s, they were trying to do everything with whole blood, and that was too much. And so, yeah, you and I might have a conversation like that, and the next day we'd probably be back to, you know, business as usual, so to speak. These guys, the next day, a couple of them sat down and started making the machine, That's even though they had very little background in machinery <laughs> one poor doctor had all these tubes all around his office and and and, and they, they, there was some very serendipity moments that got them you know they got them to the end but they made the machine they made they made the what we call now the blood centrifuge machine and the part i love the best is okay they patented it but then the next thing they do is they make it free to any hospital that wants it I mean, that's a far cry from what goes down today in medicine. So it's not just having the gumption to come back the next day and go, you know, that magic machine we were talking about. Hmm, you think we could actually make it? And then they start trying to do it. And then to make it, which is a leap of faith unto itself, but then to, in a sense, make it free to any hospital that wants it. And, you know, tons of them use it today, I think, is a little bit beyond where we're at right now when it comes to medical advancement and such. Oh my gosh, I mean, it's night and day. I mean, the fact that they took the initiative to make it, one, and then two, to offer it to free, you don't hear that. You, we have congressional hearings on uh, drug <laughs> manufacturers completely you know, marking up drugs 1,000, 2,000 percent in, in a couple months. Um, this is, it sounds like another- Exactly. Time. 
Do you think yeah, that they, and, and they, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was I'm sorry. Say, do you think if in the similar could 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 doctors today take the risk that they took back then, or is it just a completely different uh, uh, atmosphere now? I think it's a different atmosphere on two fronts. Number one is the risk, and it, it's not like they were, but they it's not like they were, you know, taking unnecessary risks, but they were taking risks. You know, in a sense, they were really, and part of it was once, especially a young patient, a kid got, say, ALL, they probably had about a year to live, May 18 months. That was the original diagnosis my brother Eric had. And thanks to these cancer cowboys, he lived close to eight years. Um, so I think the risk, I mean, it's probably more threats of lawsuits and such today, even under a clinical trial situation. But I think the other thing, you know, you just alluded to it, Jonathan, is the money. Everybody's looking for the money. These guys, you know, they did okay. They made a good living, but it wasn't like, as far as I can tell, when they made the blood centrifuge machine, for example, nobody at any point said, well, hang on a minute. Let's not put this on the market. Let's see how much we can really get for it. There was never that conversation. And I think at times we hear today how we need a cancer moonshot and, you know, former Vice President Biden said that, et cetera. Um, there's a lot of money going into cancer research. I think there's some amazing doctors still in cancer research, but I think sometimes the philosophy or the approach has been warped a little bit. And I think it kind of goes back to money. I asked every one of these doctors that I interviewed, you know, in a sense, the cancer cowboys, Pinkle, Holland, Sinks, et cetera. One of the last questions I always asked them was, could this be done today? And all of them kind of, they hedged it at times, they all kind of smiled and kind of just say, maybe not. And, and I think it's for the reasons we're, we're touching on right now. Wow, interesting, interesting. I mean, so that's a fascinating element of the book. I mean, it's a huge chunk of the book, um, is this, the story of these doctors and, and the risks that they took and uh, um, the, just their, their motivation and uh, um, the, the, the advances that they made, which are uh, amazing. Um, but on the same token, on the on the flip side, there's this is also a very personal book for you. It's it's a memoir, and um, it's a very emotional book. Um, reading parts of it uh, over the past couple of weeks, uh, I'll be honest, it was you know I get choked up. But I was you know even <laughs> even even talking you know asking questions. I was to tell you you know this. I might not be able to get through the question. <laughs> it might take it a couple of times. Um, so, so with your with your brother Eric. Now he, you were seventeen when he passed away. Uh, mm -hmm. He was he was ten years old. Um, and I was really what, what what really stood out was just how your whole family pulled together um, and uh, focused on making the every day the best that they could. Um, yeah, and, and I think that's something I hope, you know, families today, people today that are struggling with cancer or know somebody who has cancer. I mean, I just came across a statistic not that long ago. I think one in three families are going to be impacted by cancer in some way, shape, or form. And it's either going to be a, a loved one or somebody they know, et cetera. Um, you know, there's 15 million people out there right now. In, in America dealing with some form of cancer. And yet, I think you can, as you say, it was, it was mostly goes back to my parents 
they jammed as much as they could into every day. And, and we were very, we lived very much in the present. We were very mindful. And there's a lot of talk today about mindfulness and such. Um, you know, back in those days, we kind of lived it. And ironically, I think the doctors kind of lived it too. And talking with them about specific clinical trials, they could, what I would see as a devastating say, clinical trial, you know, not many kids go into remission, you know, a lot are going to die soon. They could find that sliver of hope or optimism that they could build on then for the next clinical trial. And conversely, if they had one where maybe three quarters, seven eighths of the kids moved into remission and stayed there, they would still be kind of looking, okay, how can we improve it? And so I was looking when I was writing Cancer Crossing, what's, what, what are the places things intersect? Because it's not like there were any doctors in my family. Um, you know, we just went to Roswell Park and visited my brother and such, but this intersection of being mindful and trying to make every day count uh, is something we shared with, with the doctors. And um, we didn't, you know, the title cancer crossings comes from uh, on two fronts. It comes a lot of the things the doctors did going from A to Z in terms of treatment, but overall it came from in a sense sailing across Lake Ontario becoming a family of sailors. That was our big family activity. Um, music was too, to a certain extent, hockey, skating, but sailing in the summers, we did it. And sometimes 35, 10 across 35, 40 miles of open water to the Canadian side, eight of us on a 24 foot boat. I mean, that was normal life. And you don't realize it until you start talking to other people about it and you go, oh no, that wasn't very normal. And yet that crossing, those crossings, that activity we did as a family kept us going. And um, it wasn't until toward the end I was finishing up the book. And, I, and I'm, I'm like one of those guys, it does make a lot of sense for me until I start seeing the timeline. My brother's diagnosed roughly in the spring, yeah, in the spring of 19, you know, early spring of 1966. By that summer, my father has all of us and then more kids to come. We're on the water and we're learning how to sail. We became really good sailors. Everybody had jobs. I mean, we, we're good. And um, it wasn't until I was finishing up the book, I wanted to hang on a minute. We started the sail, and, and the wind, the wind especially, you can probably hear a little bit right now, is magical to my dad. It's this invisible force that can change direction. It can change magnitude. You always got to keep an eye on you know, the weather vanes, where the wind's coming from, especially if you're sailing. You know, his favorite saying was always, you know, you know make sure your sails are trimmed the right way or, or accordingly or whatever. You know, trim your sails. And um, I didn't put it together until toward the end of finishing Cancer Crossings that him teaching us how to sail was a personal pushback against having a son diagnosed with leukemia. And I called him up on the phone like, toward the end of it, toward the end of the book. And I said, hang on, you know, I've had this epiphany. I think you did this because of this. And my dad's <laughs> the most forthcoming guy in the world sometimes. And there's this pause on the other end of the line. And then he goes, of course it was. <laughs> like, okay, well, 40 years later, I wonder why we're out in that boat in the middle of the lake so much. <laughs> That's, that's, that's so powerful. I mean, that, that's, and it comes through from the uh, voices of your father and your mother. There's a line in the, in the very beginning 
of the book where you're bringing your brother, uh, your family brought your brother for the first time to Roswell Park in Buffalo. Um, and you quote your, mo your mother saying, we told Eric that we were going to a bigger hospital, one where they could see why he wasn't feeling well. Uh, we didn't use the word cancer. We never did. Yep. Yep. And that was, that was the world they were in. I mean, you think of, um, wasn't that long ago, people couldn't say cancer. They called it like the C word and such. Um, ironically, we, we, I don't know, we sometimes think we've come such a long way. And I think in terms of cancer a little bit, we have and we haven't. Yeah, people will say cancer now, but when I was finishing up the book with David Bowie, Alan Rickman, Donna Summer, uh, there was somebody else floating around in there, um, all died of some form of cancer. If you looked at their obits, the specific form is rarely there. And, and, and the thing is, people go, well, why is that a big deal? That might even be an intrusion of privacy. The family obviously didn't want you to know that David Bowie died of liver cancer or something like that. But I don't think people quite realize if you get a little bit more of the word out there, it makes it so reassuring to families and patients that are fighting that form of cancer. I think it would have really, you know, heartened a lot of people that maybe are right now dealing with, say, liver cancer in the case of Bowie, if it had been just a little bit more out there. And, um, and, and so, you know, we've come a long way, yes, but I think we still have a long way to go in terms of how we, how we picture and how we even talk about this really shape-shifter of a disease. That's interesting, yeah. So it's, people are scared to, you said that people would never even say the word, they would just call it the C word. So people, there's still a, a strong element of fear um, behind even the mentioning of the word. Um, and that's why what I took uh, another aspect of the book that I, I uh, took from reading it was that this is, it's, it's sad, uh, but at the same time, it's also um, promising and uh, a positive story in that, you know, we, we're you mentioned liver cancer or uh, pancreatic cancer. There's no treatment right now, but leukemia, that was the, that, that was the same case in leukemia back in the 60s. And look at where we've come. Um, and then exactly. Hopefully that, that, you know, 30, 40 years from now, people will having the, the similar story about liver cancer or pancreatic cancer, that, that these were dark times and then the medical breakthroughs um, changed all that. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, when my brother was diagnosed with ALL, it was the biggest killer among kids with cancer. Today, it's almost 95% cured. You know, people, you know, kids are, you know, who, who get it are living to be adults. If somebody had said that in the late 60s, early 70s, I would have looked at you like you were crazy. <laughs> but, but again, about the only ones who dared even think about that were these cancer cowboys, these doctors who uh, believed there had to be a way to um, figure it out. And, and he did. It, it's just... Uh, it's an amazing, you know, among the doctors, amazing story of determination and resiliency and just, just not giving up because it had to be devastating. And I remember talking with Donald Pinkle, who started up St. Jude in um, Memphis, the one you see the commercials for on TV and such. And, um, and he talked about losing three kids in one night and he almost quit. 
he almost said, that's enough. And he was, you know, sitting at home that night at his kitchen table and trying to figure out how he was going to go back into work, back in the Roswell Park the next day. And, but he did. And because of him and other of his cohorts and his peers, ALL is cured. It's, it's done. Let's see if we can cure some others. That's amazing. It's amazing. Well, hopefully, as we were talking about earlier, that there are some cancer cowboys now working on the diseases uh, right now. Um, but I'm so thankful that you um, wrote this book to, to share uh, not only your personal story, but the larger story of the this, this success in, in treating childhood leukemia. Um, it's very inspiring. It's very inspiring. Uh, uh, thank you, Jonathan. And, I, and again, you know, my hope is, yeah, at times this is, it's, it's a story that does bring a tear to your eye. But I think overall, it's a story of hope. And it's a story of resiliency and it's a story of how good um, we can be, you know, as both a medical community, um, you know, as a particular family, uh, even as a country, when we really focus in on something and uh, then I don't think it can be stopped. Um, I think I really believe there's great doctors out there right now. You know, the, the new wave of cancer cowboys, you know, doing work right now, even as we speak. I think what we have to do is keep figuring out how to give them the most support um, to allow them to really do their good work. Are there any uh, events that you're going to be having to promote the book? Are there any uh, talks that you're going to be giving for the book? Yeah. Um, let's see. Well, let's see. What, what, when is this going to come up, Jonathan? I mean, well, um, I'm just running through my mind right now. I'm at Politics and Prose down here in D.C., which is one of the best independent bookstores. I always feel like I'm playing Carnegie Hall when I go there. Um, that'll be April, tw April 22nd. Um, I'll be up at the Gates Library in Rochester on May 18th. I'll be at Talking Leaves Bookstore in Buffalo, uh, which uh, obviously, you know, is a major area for this book on uh, May 22nd. We're going to be doing a, a digital um, conversation with some of the new cancer cowboys at Roswell Park. I'll be moderating that on May 23rd. Uh, so, yeah, it, 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 I'm, I'm getting out and about. And, and frankly, I'm just getting, it, it's nice to bring this a little bit more out of the shadows, so to speak. You know, just, just the other day, I was on with a woman. Um, oh, where was that? Right? I want to say it was out of Madison, Wisconsin. And the woman who was interviewing me, her daughter is now 35, um, so a little bit younger than life. Well, you know, she's younger than my brother would have been. But anyway, the gist of it was she had ALL, ALL the daughter did, wow. and is now been in remission for 20, 20 plus years, almost 25 years. And so that, then there's the legacy. There's the legacy of what the Cancer Cowboys did. There's the legacy of uh, patients like my brother. And I think people need to hear more of those stories because one, one of the things cancer will do, and I think anybody you know, who's had a loved one suffer with it, is it cuts you off from the, kind of the rest of the world. It, it can be a very lonely disease. You think it's you against it. But there's a lot of people that are out there to kind of share that burden, and that's one of my hopes with Cancer Crossings is, okay, this is just one story of one family, but it does resonate, I think, with people that are 
battling this right now. Well, you've definitely done it. You've definitely done it with this new book. There's no doubt. I guess, Jonathan, the last thing I'd love to point out is, as you, as you uh, mentioned at the beginning, this is my 13th book. Um, <laughs> they say, some, somebody asked me one time, how come you write so many books? And there's that old Bruce Springsteen line, because I got debts no honest man can pay. But um, <laughs> so it keeps me going. But um, the editing experience I had with Cornell, and I've been published by some big boys, Random House, Harper Collins, you know, Medium, De Capo, et cetera. The editing experience I had with Cornell uh, was top notch, top of the heap. Um, the questions they asked, they, the suggestions they had made Cancer Crossies a much, much better book than what I initially had. And some of the questions were tough to answer and they were, they caused me to really think about things, especially on the memoir end. But, um, yeah, my, I, I can't say thanks enough for the hard work you know, people put in. I mean, they're looking at multiple revisions. I mean, you, you don't see that in New York anymore. So, uh, you know, I, a big thank you to the people uh, up there in Ithaca because uh, they, they really made this book. Oh, wow. Well, thank you so much for the, the positive feedback. That's so great to hear. Really appreciate that. So My pleasure. So thanks again for coming on and, and uh, uh, look forward to talking with you again soon. Yeah, let's catch up soon. Thanks, Sam. See you, man. Yep, take care. Bye-bye. That was Tim Wendell, author of Cancer Crossings, A Brother, His Doctors, and the Quest for a Cure to Childhood Leukemia. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we would like to offer you a special 30% discount if you'd like to purchase the book on our website. Go to cornellpress.cornell.edu and enter the promotion code 09POD at checkout. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.